boy. <laughs> so awful. He's angry if I cut one of his claws. It's little boss dragging you in the maze. He's a bad boy. <laughs> Welcome back to Check This Please, the podcast where we're rereading the webcomic Check Please. That's what this podcast is about. Today, we are talking about hockey shit number five, Sally, which was originally posted on November 4th, 2014. There is no blog post for this comic. I'm Secret OMG. And who are you? Hi, as usual, I'm Tomato. Hi, Tomato. How's things? Well, things are pretty bad for all the things I just spent two hours telling you about over Zoom. And also because, boy, we don't have that much to say about this comic. But we're going to make up for it by doing some Q&A at the end of the episode. That's right. Nobody voted for it. So now you don't get to choose it. It's being foist upon you. Tell us about uh, our new fundraising situation. Well, I feel like when you put it that way, it sounds like we're raising funds for me and you, but we're not. We are going to be doing a live stream to raise money for Democratic candidates for office in the United States of America. As you may or may not have heard, on November 3rd, we're having a national election. So a lot of people are running for things. And some of these people need our help. So we are going to be watching the 1992 film, The Mighty Ducks, directed by Stephen Herrick. I don't know who that is. And starring Emilio Estevez on Saturday, October 3rd at 10 p.m. British summertime, 2 p.m. Pacific. We are going to be streaming this film and uh, me and Tomato are just going to chat about it. And if anybody wants to come along and hear what we have to say about the Mighty Ducks, well, here's what you'll have to do. Make a minimum $10 donation to some Democratic campaign. Any Democrat who's running for office in the United States of America on November 3rd, donate at least $10 to them. Should you Donate more. If you can, yes, you should donate literally as much as you possibly can because we live in a fucking dystopia where the only thing that matters is money. So yeah, as much money as you can, but if the most you can give is $10, that's enough to get you into our Mighty Ducks fundraising live stream. If you are not in the U.S., just donate to some local left-leaning concern. We'll vet it to make sure it's not Nazis. But whatever makes sense for you in your context, that's fine by us. Send us a screenshot as proof, redact your personal info, and then we'll send you a link to our Saturday, October 3rd at 10 p.m. British Summertime, 2 p.m. Pacific live stream. And while we're watching this movie, which may or may not have a lot of, what do you call it, substance? You can also ask us check please questions and, and we can talk about check please as well. But um, yeah. We're, we're doing this. It's going to happen. Tomato's going to put up a post. We talked about it. As you probably recall, I have seen 
one YouTube video that is three minutes and 45 seconds called Mighty Ducks Colin Best Parts. So I know all about Gordon Bombay, but not a lot else. And as you may remember, but maybe not because I can't remember if I told you, I last saw the Mighty Ducks on a bus in elementary school. So I vaguely remember there being some very funny, I think some kid had to go to the bathroom humor. (laughs) I don't even know if that's there. That's what I remember. So we're happy to discover whether or not that is actually the plot of the Mighty Ducks, whether Gordon Bombay really has to go to the bathroom or not. A lemon fanfic, yes. (laughs) Anyway, come join us. I think it'll be at least an entertaining time. No promises about the quality of uh, Emilio Estevez's performance. I guess we'll have to talk about that together. Um, And you can talk with us about check please or like whatever, you know? I mean, not whatever. I guess if you ask something crazy, I might not answer it. But we would love to talk to you and love to spend time with you and love to watch, you know, children beat each other on the ice. That sounds like a good time. I mean, I'm just going to make a soft prediction, which is that mostly what we'll be talking about is how Jack wants to have sex with Emilio Estevez. Well, that seems obvious. I mean, that's a very, that's a predictable conclusion there. Who doesn't? I don't. But, you know, he's got a nice face. Yeah, he does have a nice face. I've, I've thought about it. Anyway, join us, won't you, for what could be a grossly underattended experience. If literally nobody shows up, I'm, I'm not watching this film. So let's do it. What are we looking at today? Sally. Noun. The cathartic release of energy catalyzed by a goal, characterized by ebullient noisemaking, and loosely choreographed motion, often accompanied by hugs. So Ransom and Halser tell us what a celly is. It's basically a celebratory gesture made on the ice, usually following a goal. Some varieties of celly are the fist pump, the into the glass jump, and the glorious fail. What's interesting about cellies is that they are one of few times when some hockey players express emotion. And Biddy and Jack hug because... It's a Sally. For context, when Secret and I normally write our outlines, they're like a page, two pages, three pages. Sometimes it's South Park and they're like six pages long. Oh, sometimes they're very long. We frequently have conversations in the outline. It's a great old time. This is uh, one, two, three, four, five points. It's maybe half a page. So we'll see where this conversation goes, but Much like the Mighty Ducks, whether or not this comic has substance in it is uh, up for debate. Yeah, actually, half this outline is details about the live stream, which we've already talked about. So thoughts on this strip, Tomato? As usual, this might be a little repetitive and we don't have to get too, too into it. But what does this strip do? This strip tells us what a celly is. Okay, cool. It does its usual job of introducing us to some kind of cultural component of hockey, this time on the ice. Is there anything else that it does? It gives us a little bit of Zimbits, or as I like to call it, no, nah, I just call it Zimbits. It gives us a little Zimbits ship fodder. Biddleman. Hug. Yeah, Biddleman. Yeah, Bitterman. Bitterman is a real last name of somebody I know who died. Oh, no. Okay. So sometimes people say things like, you know, if Jack and Biddy got married, they would combine their last names into Biddleman. And it's like, no, why would they do that when Bitterman is already a real last name? Moving that aside, just pushing that aside, we're getting some Zimbit ship fodder here. They're hugging and Jack is saying something that's as emotionally earnest as anything he's said in the comic. And he's not even really saying anything. 
But because he's sort of caught up on his words of saying like the emotional high of playing with you and scoring together is emotionally gratifying for me, there's something touching. And if you're excited about Jack and Biddy as a ship, maybe this is meaningful for you. Now here's the situation with me secret. I'm not. And I also already know that they get together and, and have butt sex. So the fact that they hug on the ice in this do nothing boner comic on the side is not that exciting to me. But I can totally understand that if you were reading along in uh, early year two, before anything has even happened, this might be a cool, fun, chippy moment for you. And I get that. That's how I remember it. And I will also say, I'm going to read what, what Jack actually says, which is Biddle, ellipsis, I, you, when I play with you, I just wanted to say, great fucking goal, eh? And even though he doesn't say anything, somehow these ellipses are more specific than most of the declarations of love that he makes throughout the rest of the comic. And so even though in this moment he's not saying anything, by not saying anything, somehow this feels like some of the most authentic and genuine intimacy that we see between Biddy and Jack in the entirety of the comic, including when they're lying in a bed together. To me, this somehow feels more romantic. And I really like that. You know, it makes me, it gives me fun feelings when I look at it and think back to the Halcyon days when I didn't think they were going to end up in a nightmare contest over who gets to wear the fucking machine attachment this time around, you know? That's a joke. It's always Jack. So I, I, I like this moment. And I do think that in a series of scenes that we'll talk about as we go through year two, this is a really nice little moment that shows some of the growing intimacy between them in a way that we have discussed missing in year one. That Jack's dialogue is stilted and trails off and he never totally completes a thought is an example of showing and not telling because the comic is showing you that Jack is feeling something, but he's so overwhelmed by what he's feeling that he can't even put words together to express it. When he says how he's feeling, he sounds like he's reading the inside of a dove chocolate wrapper. Right. I think this is one of Ngozi's strengths and weaknesses as an author. I think she really works well in certain kinds of dialogue. And I think she probably got a lot of practice writing the kind of character who can't say what he's feeling, given her sort of experience with Hardy, the, the screenplay she wrote. I think that's one of Jack's best qualities as a character, whether it's because he's overwhelmed or simply doesn't know how to express what he's feeling, or, you know, he's worried what he's feeling might be a little gay, so he just like doesn't access it and can't put words to it, or, or whatever. I think these are all interesting things worth exploring. And, and there's something that makes fanfic really fun with this character. When Jack becomes totally self-actualized, ditches his anxiety, and begins to just, you know, becomes essentially the inside of a Hallmark card or a Dove chocolate wrapper or, you know, a Tivana tea bag axiom, you know, he loses what makes him specific and he becomes kind of a cardboard cutout of a love interest. Well, that's a lot to get into that we'll have to talk about, you know, in year three and four. This moment for me is really special because Jack trying to articulate something and failing, but communicating something that to me, the reader, I understand is bigger than what he can actually say feels like a really important characterization moment. And I like that since he doesn't get very many of them besides being an asshole and then 
<laughs> being a psycho killer because say in the shower, you know? You start a conversation, you can't even finish. You're talking a lot, but you're not saying anything. When I have nothing to say, my lips are sealed. Say something once, why say it again? That's all I, I have. hate people when they're not polite. Okay, let's just... Yeah, I guess what I'll say to sort of round this off, and then we're basically like almost out of material, is I like or I enjoy when Ngozi writes things that are unclear or open to interpretation or there is a moment of like awkward drop off and where you read the awkwardness is up to the reader. I think when she's trying to write demonstrative dialogue of somebody saying like something forthright, that's where we get into problems. She's great at moments of disconnection or miscommunication or abrupt redirects. Sorry, my cat is scratching. So I don't know if you hear a little jingling bell in the background, that's what's happening. I don't mean to elaborate on this too much because I think it's very related to things we have said over and over again about hockey. The point of the celly is that it's one of very few moments in hockey where it is not only allowed, but expected that the player will express some kind of emotion. So Jack is only allowing himself to express emotion in this socially coded, masculine coded, very limited truncated setting of having just scored a goal and then he gets to like hug his teammates and make a little uh, gesture or whatever. And then it's over and you move on. And of course, when you give interviews, you have this monotone hockey voice and everything you do is very regulated and showing some kind of emotion or some sort of feeling beyond a general team spirit and you know satisfaction with the effort made by your teammates is pretty much looked down upon. So yeah, it's like the specific masculine coded appropriate setting for displaying emotion. To that point, I watched a video compilation of Sully's posted to the NHL YouTube account. And this video is one of the most boring things I've ever watched in my life, except for the appearance by Don Cherry in the middle of it, wearing a crazy suit, which created some visual interest. But yeah, other than that, it's just basically hockey players having just scored a goal doing a little fist pump or bumping fists with somebody or jiggling or like wriggling in some way that indicates like a moment of joy. Just Google like Selly, hockey Sellies on YouTube and I'm sure you'll find this video. One person does do the glorious fail. There's at least one moment. I didn't pay attention to who it was because it wasn't anyone I cared about who, yeah, is doing a celly, you know, they're, where they're like trying to like lift their knee up or something to kind of like bring it into their elbow and then they like flop over. So sometimes people make questions about like, oh, does Ngozi actually watch hockey? Does she actually research things? She is making this comic because she does watch hockey and she has looked into things. So yeah, these are things that actually happen. But that's pretty much all I have to say about it. Like, that's it. That's what it means. That's what it is. I will add that if you have too much personality in your celly, the hockey world sometimes doesn't like this. There have been a couple that I have come across 
mostly because of hockey RPF, which again, it's not really a world I'm in, but it's a world I'm aware of. And also because I occasionally watch hockey, but I, I have not been watching at all recently. So I don't know what's going on in the world. But there are times when player sellies are too flamboyant. This is especially true with Eastern Europeans. Like, you know, God forbid those Eastern Europeans do too much with their hands on the ice. Good Lord. I do think that's kind of interesting because it is a clash a little bit of hockey cultures where you've got someone who flaps like a bird on the ice and then, you know, hockey commentators have to talk about how rude that is, I guess. So this is also, even though it is a, a mode of expression, it is still weirdly highly regulated. And as Secret pointed out, it still has to be masculine in particular ways. And if it ever gets too flamboyant, if you ever, I don't know, what's the other one? Someone did something where they like imitated, oh, I think Alexander Ovechkin once like imitated that his stick was on fire and this was like a big deal. I remember reading an article about it once years ago. I don't know. Anyway, so if you're a little too flamboyant, the hockey press might decide that you are above your station and need to be sort of highly regulated back down into appropriate masculinity. Oh, guess what, everybody? I just Googled it and it was Alex Ovechkin making it look like his stick was on fire in what the internet is calling a hot stick celebration. Sorry, my my cat was doing something not okay. So I had to put an end to that. Were you regulating his movements back into the rigid confines of masculinity? He was like scratching at or like tearing at a cardboard box and it was just making like a lot of noise. And here's the thing. He's, as you can maybe hear, he's like running the fuck around. Right, listen, listen, I don't know if you can see Tomato, but he has, do you see the cabinets over the sink? Above in that little space? Yeah, he is in that like teeny tiny like crevasse. And now he is creeping around like, oh, you can see his tail maybe? I see this little lashing tail above and below the cabinet. Yeah, now I can just see like his little glowy eyes like... Anyway, oh yeah, sorry. My cat's been a real asshole, but it's not his fault. I mean, it's absolutely his fault. Sorry, sorry for the noise on this episode. Ugh. Ugh. It's a loosey-goosey kind of time. It's been how many months into this pandemic? I haven't. I went to the dentist the other day and it was the most human contact I'd had in 2020. So that was an experience. You know, we're all just having a time here. All right. Well, I'm sorry. My cat is just like running around. He's like got nails on the floor. And I'm sorry about the noise that it's happening in this podcast. Have you said everything you wanted to say about Don Cherry? Yeah, well, I really don't have anything to say about Don Cherry besides, you know, occasionally one of his suits would make me go, huh, that's it. That's all I've got. Only occasionally? Well, most of the time. But then some of the other time I was just like, I don't like this man's voice. Or I mean, I kind of have a weird fondness for how awful he is, but, <laughs> but I'm not really into him. So sometimes the huh of the suit would be balanced out by the like, oh my God, he's still talking because he was always still talking. He could talk a lot. Anyway, that's enough about Don Cherry for me. So thank you. Love to hear it. This is the only hockey shit strip in the year. So first one and last one. And from here in years three and four, there is also only one. There is one extra one in the Sticks and Scones book, and it's on pranks. Have we said this before on this podcast? I have never seen it because I don't have that book. And I've been hoping that it would float to the surface somewhere 
because why wouldn't it? But yeah, I, I haven't seen it anywhere. I haven't seen anybody post anything about it. It's not even listed on the wiki page. I haven't seen anyone pop it into a Discord or anything like that. So part of me is kind of worried that I'm going to have to buy the Kindle version of Sticks and Stones so I can see what this uh, extra special hockey shit is. I'm very, very curious. I highly doubt I won't be disappointed. But anyway, that's it. There's three more hockey shits after this. So there's as many hockey shits for the rest of the comic, including in the special print volume, as there was in year one. So the kind of two questions I think you can answer, but I don't think I have much to say about them, is why do these just like basically disappear from the comic? And on the flip side of that question is, why does she keep including them? I think they disappear from the comic for two reasons. Well, three reasons. One, there's only so many things to introduce about hockey. And much like Biddy has assimilated into hockey culture, the reader has been assimilated into whatever passes for hockey culture in check, please, by the time we get to year two. There are plenty of more things to explore, but they would usually be much bigger and more complicated questions than just a brief encyclopedia of, you know, fun hockey facts. So I think they die down because there's not that much left to explore culturally that are fun, short, pithy pieces that you can make an illustration of and move on. I think that, again, in a kind of textual sense, Biddy is no longer a fish out of water. He is obviously right. He remains a fish out of water in some ways throughout the rest of the comic. That's sort of the, the visual gag. But he is very much beginning to become a heart of the team. He becomes the heart of the team, you know, years three and four, essentially. Everybody loves Biddy. That's like the point of the comic by that point. And so he doesn't need to be indoctrinated into hockey culture. And the reader uh, doesn't really need to be indoctrinated into hockey culture either anymore. We've been indoctrinated. Thirdly, the comic stops being about hockey. So there's not much left to talk about in that sense either. It switches much more into relationships and Jack and Biddy specifically and coming out and hockey becomes sort of a background element rather than a central element other than for certain games. And for the most part, hockey becomes an extension of Biddy's success rather than a world that Biddy is trying to prove himself in. So I think that it just becomes less important. Uh, maybe Ngozi got tired of drawing them also, very possible. And then I think the reason that she keeps including them is the same reason she keeps including more frogs and people moving in and out of the house. I don't fully know the reason because I probably would have done something different depending on how I was organizing a comic. But I do think that this comic, we've talked about this before, relies really heavily on ritual and kind of ritualized coming of age. And milestones are, are a really, really big thing. And kind of a linear set of milestones are a really big thing in this comic. And so I think hockey shit becomes another ritual that the comic goes through every year. Like, this is part of the story I'm telling. And this marks time in the comic. And it is a pattern that has developed and therefore it will it is a pattern that will keep going because all of the patterns developed in this comic formally speaking not characterization wise or plot wise but formally speaking all of the patterns that develop in this comic tend to keep keep happening so those are my answers yeah i think building on that part of it is she enjoys drawing different stuff so if a lot of her comics recently have just been like hanging out at school hanging out in the house like 
this is a chance to transpose the characters into some abstract setting that might be more fun to draw. In this comic, there are a couple of panels of GIFs. The uh, types of cellies are animated. It works better here than it does with like dancing cookies in GIFs bags because you're actually seeing an animation of the action. But yeah, I mean, I imagine it's partly sort of like experimental portfolio work, but it's also possible that it's just like fun. It's just like a different thing to do that you don't usually get to do in drawing this comic. It's also an opportunity to be kind of like gag based, not that anything that happens in any of the hockey shit comics is like real funny, but they are kind of happening outside the canon of the comic proper, or at least the plot. So you can do something that is totally gaggy, a little bit like goofy. And I guess it's like a permission structure for tonally breaking what's going on in the comic at any given time. I think people also really like them. I think readers really like them. They're really fond of them. I think we did mention this when we talked about hockey shit before, but I have seen a lot of people who really, really don't like Check Please basically make the comments of like, oh, I wish more of it had been these hockey shit comics. I really like these hockey shit comics. I like the hockey shit comic from year three. That one I think is like really well done and really effective. This Sully one is just kind of like, okay, all right. It's kind of like, a, it's like a trifle. It's like a nonpareil or something. Which one is year three? Is that locker room? Yeah, that's locker room. Yeah, I, I had fond feelings about them when I had more fond feelings overall for this comic, which for the record, I do obviously still have some fond feelings for. Now that I'm reading this in its larger context, though, it doesn't have the same community building feeling that I originally got from it. It doesn't have the puncture of building tension that I felt when I was reading the comic before it finished because the tension is completely removed from the entire comic for me now, more or less. So it no longer serves a narrative purpose on rereading and for me anyway, and so I, I kind of don't love it. And it also doesn't tell me something interesting that I don't know, both because I know what a Sally is and also because it doesn't do much in terms of characterization or in terms of questioning the world. I'll say that moment of Jack and Biddy hugging, that made me feel nice. So that's it. But I don't think it's, yeah, I don't think it's doing that much. Are you ready to read some asks? Oh, I'm very ready. Thank you everybody for sending us asks. Feel free to send us more. Sometimes we answer quickly. Sometimes months and months and months later, we make a podcast about it, you know? I know. All right. So we have a few here that we're going to try to get through. Rowing Viola here sent us this a while ago, like way at the start. I, for one, would actually love a bit more context for NCAA, ECAC, sports and American colleges in general, because it's one of those things that, unlike the hockey shit, is given as assumed knowledge for the reader. And as someone not located in the U.S., I have no idea about what's realistic or even culturally assumed regarding playing sports at that level and potential career progression from that. Although from fandom osmosis, I do understand that Jack having played in major juniors shouldn't be there. So yeah, we have over the past 30 episodes since we got this ask covered some of this. But one thing that we intended to do that I think we never got around to was explaining a bit more about context for how 
sports work at colleges in the U.S. And I think we've danced around it a little, but just to answer it directly. Actually, let's answer it indirectly. Here's what I'll say. I went to college at two major research universities. Well, college and then grad school. Both like very large, very prestigious universities that were not in the Ivy League, but are regularly considered among the best schools in the U.S. They did not have strong sports culture. They were D3 schools that had serious athletes at them who were like super dedicated to playing their sports and were willing to do it alongside the other academic like requirements and responsibilities that were like the primary thing they were going to college for. And it was a subculture that if you weren't in it, it was like it wasn't even happening at the school. I had a very different experience. And let me just quickly also explain D3. That means division three. And in the United States, universities are given a certain designation, D1, D2, D3, that tells you both how big their sports teams are in terms of the funding that they're given and in terms of the training that the players go through, as well as in terms of the skill level. I had a very different experience because I went to a large state research university, which was a Div 1 school, and I am now currently in graduate school at another large state university that is a Div 1 school. Although I will say, maybe because I'm in graduate school, but I think because of the school culture, sports is not a huge part of the culture here, whereas it was a huge part of my undergrad school, which was part of the Big Ten. So that is a very big deal football consortium in the U.S. Anyway, so that's part of it. Different schools have different levels of skill. Yale is D1. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's in the Ivy League. So here's the thing. When people talk about the Ivy League, have we covered this on this podcast? The Ivy League is eight schools that are all D1 schools. And the term Ivy League, even though it's now associated with academic excellence, and indeed all of them are great schools, it is specifically referring to the fact that they are in the same NCAA Division I consortium. So Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Cornell, Columbia, Dartmouth, Penn, and I have forgotten one. Man, this is going to bother me. Oh God, this is going to piss me off, isn't it? I think I said Dartmouth. Wait, Brown, Columbia, Cornell, Dartmouth. Brown! I missed Brown. How did I miss Brown? It's like the best one. Yeah, here's the thing. These eight schools are all well-regarded academically. They're some of the oldest schools in the country, and they're all basically in like the top 10 ranked U.S. higher education institutions, which as we did talk about extensively on another podcast is to a certain extent kind of a meaningless distinction. It's like, you know, in some senses it means something, in a lot of senses it doesn't really mean anything, but the term Ivy League specifically refers to the fact that they're all in the same athletic league. There are other athletic leagues in the U.S., for example, the Big Ten, or the SEC, I think, is another one. Is there something called the Pac-10? This is really demonstrating. Yeah, this is really demonstrating how little I know about this. I mean, I understand like the you know D1, D3 system, but you know, like other other divisions of schools in D1, forget it. 
Point being, what was the point? Why did I bring this up? This is not helping you, roving viola here. Well, I have I have some thoughts too, and I'm gonna just briefly explain. To the best of my knowledge, I am not a particular expert, but let me talk just a little bit about kind of how hockey works in the U.S. Hockey is one of the big four sports in the U.S., which means that you can become a professional athlete if you're a man. You can become a professional athlete in the sport, make you know wild riches, become semi-famous. It's not like if you're a lacrosse player, like you're not gonna make millions of a year. To be fair, a lot of hockey players also don't make millions of dollars a year, but some of them do. It is the smallest of the big sports in the U.S. It is also, I think, the least diverse in terms of people's backgrounds, race, etc. And this is a big problem in the league, actually. And there's actually stuff brewing right now because of racism in the NHL. Also, I am not the best person to be a voice about that, although, you know, I can explain what I mean. But that's just something to know about that sport. When you start playing sports in the U.S., which seems to be a much bigger part of our childhood and school culture than in other places I have lived and other people I know who live in other places, sports in the U.S. is, is, a, is a really, really, really big deal. The funding is much different than you might find in other kinds of places, including at public schools. And with hockey, most people who become professionals start playing really, really young, like four or five. There are some people who start later. It certainly can happen. But from what I have heard and seen, mostly people start playing in young childhood. There are competitive leagues from a very young age. If you've heard peewee hockey or bantam hockey or whatever, there are different age ranges. A lot of those names have now been changed to being like under 17 or under 13 or whatever. Actually, I think it's under 11, whatever you get me. But there are basically several different levels of hockey designed for people of different ages and different different weights, basically, and different skill level at every stage of hockey, starting from very young through to adolescence. There are recreational teams, school teams, and then elite teams. Elite teams are usually community-oriented rather than attached to a particular school, and often they will travel. So those are all non-professional. You join, your parents pay for you to join, you pay for your own gear, you do not get any kind of money for it. You might be able to get a scholarship depending on your skill level and the particular place that you're doing it, but for the most part, it's out of pocket. This is also part of why hockey is a very, very expensive sport, and this is part of its problem in attracting players from many different backgrounds. When you get to later adolescence, you can do a couple of different things. You can do what Jack did, become semi-pro, which I don't know all of the details about what makes different kinds of professional, hockey professional or semi-professional, but money is involved. The major juniors in Canada are one way to do that. You make very little money, but you make some amount of money. And because you make money, this is why that, that old chestnut of, you shouldn't have been in the NCAA. Once you make money doing a sport, you're not allowed to play in the NCAA. This has been a problem for like athletes who are in their university teams who might like say, go to the Olympics and then get offers for sponsorships. There's like a lot there about what you're allowed to do and what kind of money you're allowed to take. Anyway, I don't need to get into that and I'm not an expert in that either, but you can do that route. Once you are in a professional or semi-professional league for a couple of years, you have the chance once you hit 18 to go up for the draft. Uh, and that's one way that you can get to the NHL is if you get drafted by a particular team. We see some part of the draft process in check please. So I don't need to explain it that much, but essentially a team reaches out to you and is like, Hey, come to our development camp. They see whether they like you. 
and then on draft day they call your name and you're now attached to that to that team we can talk more about the draft if you want but that's one way you can do it once you're drafted to a team it doesn't actually necessarily mean that you'll go play for that team you could get sent down to the AHL where you knock around get better at playing hockey and then are eventually called up or you could immediately become the face of your team if you're like you know a Sidney Crosby type or whatever so that's one way another or way or Kent Parson or a Kent Parson for that matter exactly oh he's so close he's so close I'm so excited okay another way that you can do this is you can go to college there are some colleges with really well-known hockey teams. Most of them are in the Midwest. So the one that's coming to mind is North Dakota. Um, I think it's like North Dakota, Michigan, yeah. Boston. Yeah, Boston's good. I think there's a place in Minnesota too, I want to say. Is University of Minnesota a top hockey school? I could be remembering incorrectly. I don't know. Anyway, it's cold places. That's the common denominator here. It's cold places where there's not that much else to do besides, you know, play hockey. And for most people who play in these college teams, they go to college for a couple of years and then enter the draft. Sometimes they'll continue their degree and will finish it. Often they don't. Sometimes they'll be drafted and then they'll go back to school for a year before joining the team. I mean, there's different ways that this can play out. But for someone like Jack Zimmerman, he's not going to enter the draft because he's too old. So he, he enters the negotiation table not as someone who will be drafted to a team, but as a free agent, which means that he is going to negotiate his contract outside of the draft process because there's an age limit. So that's another way that you can end up in the NHL. Those are the only ways that I can think of. You can do what Holster did, which was like go play non-professional but very serious hockey, not get drafted, and then go to college. And then I guess if Holster like shaped it up, maybe he'd go to the AHL, but I guess he becomes a consultant or whatever. Yeah. So Holster in the comic did the equivalent of like taking a gap year or a gap couple of years to basically pay, play, you know, recreational, but still serious level hockey. So I've looked at the list of um, colleges with the most frozen four appearances and tied at the top are Michigan and Boston College, followed by North Dakota, Boston University, Minnesota, Denver, which is shocking to me. It shouldn't be, of course, but I don't, you know, nobody ever thinks about the University of Denver, followed by Harvard, which is a little bit surprising, followed by Wisconsin and then Michigan State, and then Maine. So maybe Deck should have just done that and cut his losses. I have thoughts about that. The point that Tomato makes is correct. Uh, all of these schools are basically pretty far north. They're all in like traditional cold weather winter sports uh, contacts. And to her point about hockey being popular in the U.S. or not, as it shakes out, yes, it is the least popular of the four major sports leagues, which are Major League Baseball, the National Basketball Association, the National Football League, and of course, the NHL. By the sort of least popular, I mean it has the lowest viewership. And correspondingly, there are really no hockey players in the NHL who are like widely known, widely renowned throughout the U.S. in terms of popular culture. Hockey players are not the concern of like gossip websites or ever really making the news for doing anything. Like if you think about who the most 
popular or the highest regarded hockey player in the U.S. right now is, I guess probably it's like Sidney Crosby. But the thing is, I have literally never heard anybody mention Sidney Crosby in my entire life in any context other than we were already talking about hockey. It's not something that comes up ever. I think this is much different in Canada, but it's just not that popular here. It's very much a niche interest. This does sort of vary by market. So the city that I'm from has an original six team that's very popular and has had a lot of success over the last, oh, let's just say decade. Exactly. So the people who are stars on that team, who I'm not going to mention because their names would have to be bleeped out, some of them, around town, those particular people, we talk about them and like, we love hockey. But that certainly doesn't consider, like, carry over to, say, Atlanta, a southern city that had a hockey team while I was living there. And it was so incredibly unpopular that they literally went to Winnipeg. So um, disappointing nobody and no one noticed and it changed nothing. And I couldn't tell you any of the people who were on that team, even though I liked hockey because it was just not part of like the media market, like around town, nobody cared. So in terms of thinking about like, is hockey popular? Generally, it's not. It can be more so based on context. Comparatively, if you think about like other US sports, you can probably name, even if you're not familiar with US sports, some of the like major superstars from, I don't know, if not the our lifetimes, like historically, like you can probably, if you think about it, name a couple of baseball players. Like you can probably name like Babe Ruth or Jackie Robinson or somebody like that. I don't know. Who's that guy who did a J-Lo? Anyway, whatever. I'm not into baseball. I find it very boring. I know people say it's cerebral. I don't care. You can probably name like, you know, John Elway and maybe like Tom Brady or like, I don't know, all these other fucking like football guys. And then people know like Michael Jordan and I don't know, Magic Johnson and A-Rod. It's A-Rod. I can't believe I forgot. A-Rod. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I was like, Alex something? (laughs) Fucking A-Rod. By the way, everybody, I hate the Yankees and uh, I hate them forever. I have a hereditary hatred of them and uh, I'm angry about it. I hate the Yankees for the following reason. Once I had to go to a Yankees game, like at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx with work, it was a social outing. So... We, uh, we went to the Yankees game. I brought a copy of the New Yorker. I sat there reading the New Yorker in the bleachers and Yankees fans started heckling me. Then during the middle of the game, they all started yelling Boston sucks, which I thought was really interesting because they were playing, I think the Angels who are from California. And I was just like, this team is obviously rotten. I hate the Yankees because part of my family immigrated to Queens, New York, which is a Mets location. So I I will say you will never meet anybody who is a Mets fan. There are none. Excuse me. There are several and uh, we're all sad all the time. And I'm not even really a Mets fan because I don't love baseball. I'll go to a baseball game and I will not read the New Yorker. I'll have a good time, but I don't watch it. 
but it's a rough life out there as a Mets fan, everybody. It's hard. It's hard. The Yankees are horrible. They're just horrible. Anyway, so that's A-Rod. He dated Jennifer Lopez. I don't know. Whatever. Fuck Derek Jeter, too. Oh, I remember that guy. Listen, here's the thing. My point in going through all of this is really just to say, like, even if you're not super familiar with, like, other sports, other U.S. sports, there are some figures from, like, baseball, basketball, and football who are, like, transcendently famous because they did something, even internationally. For example, the city that I may or may not be from, when I mention it while I'm, like, abroad, which is, I guess, always because that's where I live, people automatically, if they've never, like, been to the U.S., when I tell them where I'm from, they're like, oh, the Bulls. Hockey is not like that. It's possible that the only hockey player who transcends like popular culture in any sense is Wayne Gretzky. But I don't even know if that's true anymore. I think it was true in like the 90s. Like I remember him being referenced, I think, in the Ninja Turtles movie, which I only remember because I recently listened to a podcast about the Ninja Turtles video game for NES and they brought it up. Here's what I'm saying. We have done a horrible job with this ask. I think we got some answers out before we got derailed into thinking about sports in America more broadly. So I hope that was helpful. And um, what I will say is that it is, it is very unreal. Like it is a small chance that you will end up actually in the NHL, even though it is a smaller sport. It is incredibly competitive. It is a highly skilled and dangerous sport. So if you make it to adulthood without like blowing out your knee permanently, you know, and good enough to get into NHL, that's like a pretty small number of people. And then even once you make it past and you're attached to a team, getting from the AHL to the NHL is is quite difficult. So in terms of what's culturally assumed regarding playing sport at that level and potential career progressions, uh, almost nobody you know is going to end up playing professional sports. If they do, it's definitely not going to be in the major league. It's going to be in a minor league. And that might be less true if you're from a place with a very, very intense sports history. But uh, for the most part, that's how it's going to be. It's going to be quite rare that you end up actually playing sports. And then that you are a star, exceedingly rare, exceedingly rare. Yeah, I guess the two things I would throw in here to give some context about hockey are if you are a football player or a basketball player, obviously this is a minority of even professional level players. But it's possible that over the course of your career of, you know, 10 to 20 years, you can make hundreds of millions of dollars just by playing the sport. So like not in endorsements, not by investing, just in salary, like tens of millions of dollars per year. In hockey, you can make tens of millions of dollars over the course of your entire career. This is obviously only if you're a man. Um, if you're a woman playing professional sports, you won't make any money. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about like the big four sports leagues. If, if you are one of a select few of like exceedingly famous, exceedingly winning football or basketball players, you can make hundreds of millions of dollars. If you are one of the top hockey players, you can make tens of millions of dollars like over the 
course of your career, basically. So it's like, that's the difference. Now, obviously to like, my guess is everyone listening to the podcast, that's like, you know, a difference between, I don't know, like going to heaven or hell or something. Why did I say that? I'm trying to think of something that's like so meaningless. It's like a complete abstraction, you know, only making tens of millions of dollars. I'm not saying like boohoo, poor hockey. I'm just trying to like put into perspective that the overall capital, both social and actual in the sport is far, far less than in the other three leagues. The other thing I'll say is, uh, yeah, hockey is super white, super, super white. There are some players of color in the league. There aren't very many. Recently, Akeem Alyu wrote for the Players' Tribune about his experience in hockey as a Black player. And yeah, basically what he said is that hockey is a sport that doesn't really tolerate difference. So it's wrapped up as a whole culture, both that it's a sport that costs a lot of money to play, that has a very, very costly buy-in in terms of like physical skill and physical safety. And also the paydays are relatively low. So, you know, if you do for some reason happen to like play in the NHL for three or four years, you could make millions and millions of dollars in hockey. You probably won't. And while you're in the league, it's possible that you could get some sort of like horribly disastrous injury that doesn't even make it worth it. So like, if you think about it, if you make like a few hundred thousand dollars playing hockey over two or three years, that sounds like a huge amount of money, but it's really not if the result of you being in the NHL for two or three years is that your body is completely destroyed and that money has to last you the rest of your life because you kind of can't do anything else. And I think the people who are most able to take that risk are generally like, you know, white men and especially white men who come from like hockey families or parts of the country where hockey is super popular. I feel like I'm sounding like a fucking moron But this all goes hand in hand with the culture that we've already actually talked about in this episode of hockey as basically like a conformist enterprise where it's not even encouraged that you spend a lot of time emoting because that would be thinking about yourself too much and drawing too much attention to yourself rather than being part of the team as a collective unit. The less like a typical hockey player you are, the harder a time you're going to have playing hockey. And, you know, this comic is largely about the difference that comes along with sexuality. But, you know, what the comic is telling us is that Kent Parson and Jack Zimmerman, not that it's a good thing, and we'll spend the rest of this podcast, like, until we get to the end of the comic talking about it, but, like, they are not visibly different than anybody else on the ice. They can pass effectively, but players of color, for the most part, can't. So every time you go on the ice, it's very obvious that you're not like the rest of the hockey team, and if you're playing hockey, other than, like, doing it well, that's kind of your main job, is to be part of the team. So if you don't look like the rest of the team, it's a problem. Yeah. And that kind of keeps people from like 
wanting to play and it keeps people from having a great experience when they are playing. And I guess the final thing I'll say about this is following anti-racism protests that have grown and grown over the past several months, sports figures in the U.S., have been making gestures of solidarity and inclusion and like, you know, anti-racist commitment. And the NHL has done a markedly, let's say, narrow job of demonstrating its solidarity with this cause. Boy, I hope we answer the next ask better. Well, I just, I briefly want to say that uh, the NHL ended up, there was a big to-do over whether or not the NHL would postpone games because of anti-racist protests happening in other major sports leagues, notably the the NBA, and whether the NHL would follow the lead of other players, as well as players who were advocating for this on NHL teams. Um, And they ultimately did postpone these games, but it was like, not thoughtfully. It was not thoughtfully done. Even less thoughtfully than your average uh, major sports league. So that's pretty bad. So there's just a huge culture, as Secret pointed out, of regulation of personhood, which Check Please specifically discusses in terms of sexuality and gender expression, but which is unavoidably tied up with white supremacy as masculinity and American paradigms of masculinity are unavoidably tied up with white supremacy. Like you can't escape it. So that's very much part of what's going on with the NHL too. And that leads us to the next question, which is from Anonymous. First of all, I'd love to someday hear Tomato's feelings, thoughts, suspicions on why hockey, more than other sports, seems to thrive on recycling archetypes in its stars. Secondly, I'd be interested to know what the two potato fix secret mentioned were. And then Anonymous said something very nice. Should I read it? Or is that self-aggrandizing? You can, I think a normal podcast would read it. Okay, let's read it. I've been a big fan of y'all diving into the discourse. The comic's long hiatuses really bred discourse, and it feels as vital in analysis as the strips themselves, given how it shaped fandom landscape over time. Love the podcast, Diamond Heart, Sparkly Heart, Sparkly Heart. Well, Sparkly Heart to you too, Anonymous, first of all. These things that we're discussing, hockey's white supremacy, hockey's extreme regulation of the self, for lack of a better term, those are the reasons that I think hockey really, really, really thrives on archetype. Obviously, all sports teams have certain kinds of like archetypal players, whether it's in their playing style or it's in their personality. But I think hockey specifically, you see the same narratives over and over again, and you see the same rigid expectations of players over and over again, because hockey, like all sports, is really tied to narrative. And I know more about hockey culture than I know about like some other kinds of sports, because I follow like local roller derby teams and I follow hockey, and those are the things that I really know about. But Hockey very much has a certain kind of narrative and hockey press is very, very narrative focused. And it's hard to tell a narrative without any personality unless you press into rigid confines what kinds of personalities are allowed on the ice. So as Secret pointed out a couple episodes ago, you see like the goofy Russian or the goofy Eastern European who's too flamboyant, by the way. This is actually leans back into that silly situation. The reason that flying like a bird on the ice or pretending that your stick has flames on it or whatever, the reason that that's too flamboyant is because it doesn't fit into those rigid expectations of masculinity. You get the Captain Serious Canadian, you know, Jonathan Taves alike. You get, or <laughs> you get like a, who's the... Who's the like generational player who's very sad because his team never wins? Connor fucking McDavid. 
Yeah, you get you get the generational player who like weeps himself to sleep every night, you know? You get I don't know, you get your Tyler Sagans, you know, the the guy who gets drunk and then like maybe outs himself on Twitter, but maybe it's his friend hacking his phone, but also he's not really gay. And anyway, then he cleans up his act and then the stars like are in the Stanley Cup finals. I don't know what's going on, guys. Um, kooky goalies. <laughs> you get lots and lots and lots of kooky goalies, right? And the reason I think that you get these is because people are going to have personalities. You can't help it. <laughs> but the other thing I will say, well, let me finish that thought and then move on to my next thought. So people are going to have personalities and it's a lot easier to deal with that in a highly regulated culture if those personalities can be pressed into already extant archetypes that fit already extant narratives about how teams work and how they fit together and how those teams combat each other. So that's part of it. The other part I will say is that hockey, unlike other major league sports to the same extent, it is more common, I think, as far as I know, it is more common that people who are teenagers are sent away from their families to live and play competitive hockey and live outside of their homes. This, it's not that this like can't or doesn't happen in other kinds of sports, but it seems to be much more part of hockey culture than it seems to be in other sports. Is that your experience as well? So the only other sport I'm really familiar with other than hockey is football. And yeah, most people who become professional football players have a different trajectory because in order to be drafted into the NHL, you must have gone to college. Yeah, the NFL, not the NHL. Yeah, I'm talking about football, whatever. And I think same with the NBA. Yeah, in order to, in order to go into like the NFL, you basically have to have gone to college. That's why, and I, I do think it's the same with basketball. I don't know about baseball, but yeah, the period of time when you would be in something like the queue or a lower, like, you know, a, a league of lesser status on the hockey trajectory where you would need to relocate somewhere and live with like a billet family, you would actually just like be in school. Right, exactly. So this is part of my like weird cultural conspiracy theory is that when you take people who are singularly dedicated to this all-consuming sport, which is very violent and very demanding and very expensive, like all the things that hockey is, when you take people out of their, you know, homes and put them elsewhere and then demand high regulation from those people, like they're underdeveloped emotionally and can't develop too much personality because they're too busy playing hockey all the time, far away from their support network as like 16-year-olds. So I think that that is also part of how these archetypes develop and how players fit themselves into these archetypes. You know, I, I mean, I'm not, I, this is not like a, <laughs> I'm sorry that this is the reference I'm about to make, but this is not like a Larry Stylinson situation where I think that, you know, the NHL is like Simon Cowell telling, you know, the members of One Direction that they can't be in love or something and thus therefore must pretend to be something they're not. I just reread it. Twitter thread from like a couple years ago about that. So maybe that's why that's top of mind. Well, anyway, I don't think that's what's going on. But I do think that this particular set of circumstances leads to people who are like emotionally unequipped to stake out personality space for themselves and selfhood. And then they sort of have this culture of martyring oneself for the team. And therefore, these archetypes become different ways that one martyrs oneself to the team. And it becomes a really important part of hockey narrative. So long story short, it's like a deeply dysfunctional culture. 
And uh, it's probably bad for everybody. And this is also, by the way, part of why like players who are different in some way, i.e. players of color, mentally ill players, players dealing with addiction, players dealing with other kinds of disabilities or whatever. This is why these players are hugely punished for not so neatly fitting into these archetypes. Wait, tell us about that potato thick. Oh, well, actually, the first thing I was going to say is that to our point in the last question that I don't know how well we made about basketball and football being much larger markets and having a lot more capital than hockey, part of that extends to the fact that NCAA Division one basketball and football are themselves giant businesses. There is a huge amount of money. And when you are playing in the NCAA, as Tomato indicated when we were answering the previous question, you cannot be paid because you are an amateur. So you go to college for free but you're largely doing it because it's a pipeline to what you hope will be a giant payday. And there is quite a bit of discourse and controversy in the US about the fact that there is a huge, huge multi-million dollar business around both around college basketball and college football, but none of the workers, you know, the players, actually get to share in any of that profit. I just wanted to share, I just looked up, for example, my undergrad university, the head coach there makes $4 million a year. That's That's what I make. And the entire uh, athletics department is, it's like 30 million earmarked as football revenue. That's at the bottom of the Big Ten, by the way. So it's a huge industry. Not to belabor this too much, but this is somewhere where I can like add something substantive. Like I said, I went to a D3 school for college. However, before the school had a major financial crisis in the 1970s, it had been a D1 school. And one of the reasons why it downgraded was to save money because it couldn't sustain that kind of athletic program. And it needed to move campuses to somewhere where they didn't have like athletic facilities. And I was very interested by the discourse at this type of school about how college athletics were meaningless and schools shouldn't invest so much money in athletics. So I went to the university archives to basically write a column about the transition of the school from a D1 to a D3 school. And what I found was letters from alumni who were basically like, I will not financially support the school anymore if you downgrade from D1 to D3 which exacerbated the money problems that the school was having, obviously. Although how much at this point, like, I don't know. I don't think there were figures attached to these, like, irate letters from, like, people in the class of 46. Having said that, people really do think of where they went to college as a fundamental part of their character. It's a major facet of identity building. And for a lot of people, university athletics 
is a way that they sustain that part of their self-identity. And it really matters to them. And unfortunately, because of the way education is funded in the U.S., alumni donations and the continued involvement of alumni, both in terms of giving money, but also in terms of like being willing to be part of like an alumni network that continues to like support graduates who are going out into the world and into various industries is like a major part of like how universities function. I am full of regret about the fact that that's how they function, but nevertheless, that's how they function. So I do just want to throw something in here about it is simultaneously true that college, especially Division I athletics in the U.S., are bloated and overemphasized. However, they do serve a role and they do serve a purpose and they are not without merit and they are not without value, various kinds of value. And if you're in the academy, as I may or may not be, you run into all kinds of like jaded scholars and like, you know, jaded people in the art sector who are just like, ugh, I don't care about sports. I don't like sports. This is stupid. It costs so much money. Who needs it? And this is one of those things where really either extreme is not helpful. Here, here. All right. You want to hear about fucking potato fix? Yeah, please do. Tell me all about it. Okay, so just in brief, I don't love Potator, but I have read a couple of fics about Potator that are good. If you're like, what the fuck is Potator? It is the pairing of Kent Parson and Tater. Parse Tater. Potator. It sounds like potato, you know, if you're a hick. It's probably how Biddy pronounces it. What's interesting about Parson Tater is that they are both like... NHL players who didn't go to Samwell. Now, later in the comic, it became a funny joke that Tater wishes he went to Samwell because who wouldn't? But because these are two guys who are both just like professional NHLers who aren't part of the sort of like one in four, maybe more say no to toxic masculinity culture of the college environment, you can write fix that sort of more realistically frame like hockey culture or NHL culture issues around this pairing. And you can draw in the sort of what is it actually like to maybe be a closeted hockey player theorizing that happens in the background of like some NHL RPS. That is the kind of fic that I have enjoyed. So the couple things that I'm going to shout out here are a fic called 702, 7-0-2 by Id Day, who I have mostly enjoyed their endgame Jack Parse fics, but... This fic is summarized, Kent does not have hoes in different area codes. What he does have are the numbers of several professional hockey players discreetly saved into his phone. It works for them because they all have the same thing to lose as he does, and they all understand his schedule, and none of them expect to talk at all between visits. It works for Kent because he doesn't believe in getting attached. Tater is different. So you can sort of see that this is not just like a fluffy concept. It's about somebody who has to have sex on the DL 
but maybe there's a little something there like that's different about Tater. But generally, check please fix are not really about like having gay sex on the DL, you know, when you're in a city for one night and you're like, I don't know, looking to get out of town the next morning. There are a couple of six that I think develop this theme by somebody called Blue Rocket Frost. Blue underscore rocket underscore frost. One of them is called Friends in Low Places, and one of them is called Sorry for the Blood in Your Mouth, I Wish It Was Mine, which I think is a stupid title for a fic, but the summary of that one is Kent orders a vodka water at the other side of the bar. Mashkov is a hard guy to ignore. He's tall and dark and his nose is interesting, sort of upturned and sharp, kind of delicate for a guy who's strong enough to pick Kent up with one arm. His eyes are almost too dark for the pupils. There's a little green in them, maybe. Kent's staring. He's never seen Mashkov anywhere off the ice, and he's not smiling, surrounded by people. Kent probably shouldn't bother him, but it's late and he's bored, and he's about out of impulse control for the day. He moves so close to Mashkov's chair that their arms are almost touching. So, he says, you come here often? So these six, again, are basically about, like, the dark undercurrent of being a closeted NHL player. This fic is also tagged prostate massage. It's been a while since I've read it, but I remember thinking that, like, the thing that made these fics work for me, all of the ones that I've mentioned, is basically that they're functioning in sort of, like, a realism that's a little bit closer to verisimilitude than, like, Check Please fic proper is. Probably because it doesn't involve, like, magic pie baking or Swassum Bros who share a bunk bed, or anything that kind of like characterizes the kind of like, you know, wacky college hijinks between people who play hockey, but like they're all really chill and there for each other. This is existing in a world where like, you live fast and you play hard, both in terms of hockey and also in terms of like drinking and anonymous sex. And it's all girded by, like, the fact that these are two guys who are in the NHL and they can't be gay, or at least not more than, like, you know, anonymously for an hour or two sometimes. But somehow they find each other and out of this sort of, like, toxic situation is born something maybe hopeful. Those are the potato fix that have worked for me. A lot of them I don't love. Like, a, a lot of them are very much like, Kent hates himself and Tater is just like a creature of like, all love. And, and he fixes it or whatever. Uh, yeah, that doesn't sound like my cup of tea. But what is my cup of tea? Insane bullshit. Anyway. Well, I like constant comment. You know, that is a good one. Maybe a Lady Grey. Anyway. All right. Anonymous also asked, a different Anonymous. I assume it's not the same Anonymous, but maybe it's Anonymous. I don't know. I'm not 100% sure of this, but I remember when the comic was first coming out, there was an extra or blog post or just collective fanon about how Biddy's family moving to a new city was tied to a bullying incident where he gets locked in a storage closet overnight, possibly by members of the football team, which is why they had to move, and the move is why he had to quit figure skating. So there was maybe paratext about Biddy facing homophobia pre-canon, but I don't know if it was fanon or not. Biddy getting locked in the closet, presumably by members of the football team, is part of the canon, and I think we've talked about that. It's in one of the earlier strips in the locker room where Biddy is saying that he's nervous 
Yeah, it's in it's in Bad Bob Zimmerman, uh, right. where he's saying that the other guys are looking at him like the way the football team was looking at him before they locked him in the closet because he doesn't know who Bad Bob is. That's right. How particularly this connects to his family having to move, we, I think, may have talked about this on an episode, and I did, I did no research into where this is on the blog or if it's been deleted, which I think it might have been because, like, everything gets deleted on, on the Check Please blog, but... As I recall, the family moved because Biddy's dad got a different coaching job and therefore he had to leave figure skating. How you read into that, whether it could be connected to this incident, I don't know. I have a feeling that the timeline in my head is that he gets locked into the closet in middle school and then they move when he's in high school. So it would have been several years later. I don't remember if that's true. So maybe we can look it up. But, uh, but that's how I remember it. However, is it possible to read into that situation and think that Biddy's parents wanted to get him out of a place that locked him into a closet? Yes, definitely possible. But as I recall, it's that Biddy's job got, wait, it's that Biddy's dad got a new job. As a result, Biddy could no longer work with Katya or whatever. And so he started playing co-ed hockey and it didn't on the surface have anything to do with that bling incident. Although, yeah, you can totally write fake about it and say that it does. Yeah, he got locked in the utility closet in seventh grade. Yeah, that's what I, I mean, remember. Oh, and then he skated until I think he was a sophomore in high school. So he, they would have moved after that. I don't believe there's anything in the comic that indicates that they moved because of bullying. I think it's probably more Fanon. The one caveat I will put here is that there's a lot of content about Check Please that's circulating around because it came from an era where either the creator was making more public comments about backstory or information that's sort of disseminated from paywalled spaces like live streams or discord servers where little comments are made and then that stuff sort of like circulates around but i think it's tough to call that canon i have also seen this idea circulated i think you know in like fix or headcanon meta posts or whatever but yeah, I think the sort of events that Tomato lays out is all you can really take from canon. That in seventh grade, he got locked in a utility closet overnight. And then probably in his sophomore or junior year of high school, his family moved because his dad got the head coaching job at the high school in his hometown. So they moved back from somewhere. I think it's clear from context that the bullying incident is related to homophobia, at least related to how Biddy is a fish out of water on sports teams. Probably, I don't think it's an accident that he was locked in the closet. I mean, people do lock people in closets. That does happen. That's a bullying thing that one could do without its resonance. But given the role that the closet plays in this goddamn comic, I just, it's hard for me to read that without some kind of resonance in Biddy's personal life. So I assume it's an incident of homophobic bullying. And I, and I always have since first reading the comic, just given like the state of things. But I don't think that we can point at it and discuss it because it, it's not explicitly labeled as such. Should we read this last long one? 
Yes, I think so. Thank you very much to Lions, Tigers, and Queers Oh My, who we, we've had this sitting in our inbox for like several months. So uh, we're now addressing it. This was a seven-part ask, and I'll read it, mostly just because I think people should hear it. We'll respond to anything that merits a response. I just finished the coaches and had a few thoughts. Firstly, y'all talking about bidding a style of play and why it matters got me wondering. Does the comic ever really give us a clear idea of Jack's playing style? Like, he's the captain, NHL darling, so I'm bad Bob and all that. But what do we really textually get regarding how Jack is as a player? And speaking to his motivation as a character, how he views himself as a player, his role on the team. Because captain is a leadership position, sure, but there's a different style of captaining, even in the NHL. Is he a skill player or is he more of a contact brute force player like his dad or like we're led to believe his dad was? If it's the latter, it's interesting narratively since even back in 2014 when the comics started, that style of play was falling out of favor with teams who were looking to get faster, better, more skilled. And it would have been an interesting piece of narrative if that was partly what figured into fewer teams being interested in him as a player. Could have set him in Parson and then him and Biddy as an old school, new school hockey dichotomy. And now I'm a little sad we didn't get that. So I guess to break there and respond to this. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. There is very little about what kind of player Jack is. Mainly what we know is that he's big, although not the biggest, and he scores a lot. So he's a playmaker, but he doesn't seem to be the kind of player that Biddy and Kent are, which as you point out here, is sort of like a faster, fleeter, soft hand style player who can sort of make plays, create plays, make connections, slip out of, you know, sticky situations, maneuver, etc. As for how Jack feels about how he is as a player, other than that, like, he wants to be the best player and he feels bad if he isn't. Yeah, I mean, we really don't get that at all, do we? And indeed, we don't really get a lot from Jack at all about how he feels about anything. I love the suggestion at the end of this paragraph. I think this would be a really interesting fic prompt to think about old hockey versus new hockey and how Biddy paired with Jack or Kent paired with Jack on the ice might reflect something about their relationship. Especially if you think about Jack's, and I quote Ngozi here, daddy issues. I think thinking about how Jack emulates his dad on the ice or might emulate his dad on the ice in a style of play which is growing out of fashion would be really interesting. What I will say is that we do see Jack make goals. We know that he's not, you know, a goon. He certainly is a skilled player, but he, as Secret says, does not seem to be fleet of foot and hand style of elite player. My guess is that he would be a powerful forward. That's probably the word I would use to describe him. So a fairly aggressive and gritty player, but highly skilled, but someone who's willing to throw down like as needed. So I will also say, um, I think we do see a little bit about how he views his role on the team in a couple of strips and also in things that are absent. So he obviously holds, you know, the weight of the world on his shoulders, but he actually doesn't seem to be very good at or very interested in building team connections across the whole team. 
at least not as we see in canon. And I say this in part because of when the frogs come to visit and he's not there. Again, I'm sure they had time with Jack, but because we don't see it on screen, it's not part of his character and not important to the narrative, I guess, that he is integral into the heart of the team. That joke that Biddy makes, well, it's not a joke, that thing that Biddy says about, oh boy, we can have brunches. And then it becomes clear that Jack has not been like enforcing nightly dinners or something with the team shows also that he is not that good at building team camaraderie outside of the the locker room perhaps i think we can read into that i think he's supposed to be i'm just saying that these are not things we see on the page and therefore we can kind of guess or make interpretations about what that means and some people might say well of course he's good at it they got they're, they're so good at hockey and then other people might say well we don't see it so we can't guarantee that what would it be like if he's not he's certainly a very self-interested player um, as we see when he's mad that biddy gets a goal and I think that starts to unfold towards the end of year one when he makes his acceptance speech for the captaincy and he's like, and you're all good guys and you know, we're all out there together or whatever. So I think we can make guesses. Um, and I also think because he is to me clearly based on like Sidney Crosby and Jonathan Taves and whatever, um, I think we can make guesses based on how those people play, how we are supposed to guess that he plays, but uh, we really see very little about it. So we do see Jack playing hockey uh, in the NHL on a couple of occasions, as Tomato mentioned. We see him in the comic PB&J getting checked quite a bit. And the notes tell us that, you know, guys are checking him partly out of frustration because he's this, like, notorious rookie who everybody's targeting like just unfairly because they don't like him. But I think you could also read this targeting as a knowledge of the other team that Jack is a playmaker and they're trying to shut that down. Like generally you check a player to try to like impede their ability to like carry the puck. Like you have to have the puck to get checked. We also in that comic see him put himself literally in between his goal and the puck. So he's willing to do what it takes. And I do think there's something about brute physicality in that, that he's less concerned about his well-being than he is about literally stopping the puck. In other strips, we see him start fights Not very often, but in the comic seven games at the end of year three, we see an image of him fighting or at least being sort of held off from fighting by a ref. And we see him, I guess, get part of a, into part of a scrum after Biddy gets checked and they win, um, they win that game at the end of year one. We see him a couple of times doing face-offs. I don't know that there's enough evidence in this comic to describe him as a face-off specialist, but I have seen people do it when um, Providence plays Las Vegas. And I don't know, Kent Parson is also on the ice. Jack is part of the face-off and Kent is not. So, I mean, Jack obviously has the sort of physical power or the quickness or both to sort of like get the get the puck 
And that's a follow-up to me on another comic in year one where one of the coaches tells Jack, like, win the face-off, and then he does. So we get little details about his playing style that kind of come through. I don't know that it's enough to build, like, an ironclad case, but I do think there's enough information that you can sort of, like start to fill out some details about what his playing is like, maybe. I also think it's interesting that, yeah, nobody really ever, like, talks about Jack's actual style of play. Like, when George is recruiting him, she doesn't seem to be saying anything about, like, why she wants him on her hockey team. Like, there's no comment about, you know, what assets he can bring or how his style of play complements the talent that's already there. We also never really have him reflect on it, and we never really have Biddy reflect on it either. Biddy never talks about what makes Jack a good hockey player, other than that he works hard, and he wins a lot, and he wants to win. So that's interesting. But there is, I mean, you know, if you read the comic and you really spend like, you know, way too much of your life carefully thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, it's like he he does things like in hockey games, like in the comic. Interestingly, there really isn't a lot of hockey play in year two. There's another half of this ask. With regard to hockey culture and concussions, injuries, etc., my memories are not the greatest, but I do follow the game semi-regularly, time permitting, and I feel like I recall 2014 being about the time that upper body injury started getting really into broadcasters' vocabularies, typically as a way of them and the team saying, yeah, it's a concussion, but we're not going to say it is. And charging was on the rule book way back in 2011, and boarding's been on the books in one form or another since 1992. So there were some league measures taken to reduce injury from illegal hits, but it's pro sports, so what's on the books isn't always what's called on the ice. I don't know about ECAC rules, but I bet they're stricter, which just makes me more angry about the end of the comic. Also one quick culture thing, because I grew up around it, but one reason that the team may not have shown concern over Biddy is that, yeah, not wanting to get hit is a natural impulse, and it's one that players need to overcome in order to play the game. And if Biddy is focused more on not getting hit, hurt, than he is on the play, he's a liability to the team and shouldn't be on the ice at his level in the first place. And yeah, I totally get it's the premise of the comic, and he's there as an odd duck out. But it does also speak to the fact that Biddy is there on a scholarship, taking a spot away from someone else who maybe deserves it more based on skill level. And that kind of thing also isn't really healthy for a team dynamic, because that's going to foster a fair amount of resentment toward Biddy from players who think he doesn't deserve to play at a college level. But that's something the comic also never addresses. Sorry this took so long, I didn't realize how much I'd ramble. Final thought, read Biddy's motivation. His scholarship is free four years at college, not in Georgia. A contact sport gets daddy's approval and a veneer of heterosexuality for his, at that point, closeted existence. I mean, yeah, I think that all sounds correct. And I do think over the past 800 episodes, we have touched on various aspects of that, but I think it's a nice way to bring all of it together and sum it up. And I'm sorry it took us so fucking long to respond, but really this is just like a nice summation of some of what's going on here. 
I don't have much to add. Yeah, Thank you I agree. That. Thank you for writing us. And it was a great pleasure to read this letter and also to read asks in general. So thank you, everybody. Uh, you got anything else to say about Sellies or anything else? No. All right. So come watch The Mighty Ducks with us. Donate 10 bucks to your local Democratic candidate or more. Or more. Please vote. If you have the time and energy, you know, I'm text banking, secrets, phone banking. We really, really, really encourage you to do what you can to make sure that our life does not remain a complete nightmare. Don't worry, it will remain a complete nightmare, but maybe it can be a slightly different nightmare. Don't need to go into a whole ramble about voting, but, uh, you know, sometimes you gotta do it. And please do. And please do it safely. Look for your, you know, register for your mail-in ballots, check your dates, and then, uh, and then, and then vote ASAP. Next time, we will be reading 2.3, Meet the Frogs. I thought we already met them. Well, now they're frogs, not tadpoles. So get ready to jump in the water. Uh, who are you? Well, it's interesting that you ask because... All right, I've been secret. You can find me, although after this episode, don't know why you'd want to, on Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or S-K-R-T-O-M-G at Tumblr.com, or at Familiar on AO3. Who are you? I'm Tomato, and you can find me at tomatowrites.tumblr.com on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. And you can find our podcast on Podbean or Spotify or at checkdispleased.tumblr.com. We love you. Thanks for listening to us. Sorry that Sally is a horrible strip, but frankly, that's not either of our faults. So send us more asks. Well, what is our fault is that we take a really long time to answer these asks and also that, uh, well, at least some of the things that I said, I wish we could go back and re-record the episode, but we can't. You know what? It's organic. It's organic. It's fine. It's cool. It's, it's hip. It's great. It's spectacular. It's Lady Gaga gif here. Anyway, have a great night, everybody. Okay. Bye, tomato. Bye. Bye.